You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Hi, everyone. I hope you are having a fantastic Labor Day and Labor Day week. I always love the beginning of September. It feels like going back to school, starting new things. And I'm particularly excited about sharing a milestone for us here at To Dine For The Podcast. Believe it or not, this is the three-year anniversary of To Dine For The Podcast. I cannot believe it. In fact, I had to say to my editor, John, are you sure it's three years? And (laughs) we did the math together. And yes, it is three years. I have had my head down having these amazing conversations, creating content, and I have really not come up for air. But today I am. Today I'm coming up for air. And I'm, I'm really excited about the month ahead because we're going to do something a little bit different, okay? Over the course of three years, we have interviewed more than 150 creators, dreamers, and entrepreneurs, and it has really been amazing. So this month, I am creating a series of master classes on the greatest takeaways from the show. They are all thematic. The very first one is going to be bringing a dream to life. How do you take an idea from inspiration to execution? We are going to revisit some of the best ideas on that concept 
in the very first masterclass. We're then going to dive into restaurants and hospitality. We will be talking about how do you create a great restaurant and what are the secret ingredients to a successful restaurant venture. We're then going to be talking about owning who you are, leaning into your own unique individual purpose. Really excited about the month ahead as we celebrate three years of To Dine For The Podcast. And finally, today's podcast is very special. So when I was thinking about three years of To Dine For The Podcast, I was thinking about our editor, John Golner, who not only is he a wonderful editor and producer, but he has become such a friend. He has been with me from the very beginning of To Dine For, the TV show on PBS. And then I had this idea to do a podcast and he was game for it. And I was just like, you know, he's just such a phenomenal person. But also, no one has listened to the podcast more intently than John. Because when you listen to the podcast, you don't realize John has taken out all the ums, the ahs he ha- of, of, of people's, you know, stuttering, including myself. And he's also taken out the boring stories. So if somebody waxes poetic about something or seems to go on and on and on, kind of like I'm doing right now, John would edit it out. So that's why when you're listening to the podcast, it has such a great flow. So I said to John, I said, John, what about if we turn the tables and you share your three greatest moments of To Dime for the podcast? You can include excerpts from three of the best interviews that you have listened to over the course of three years. So I am leaving it wide open and I'm as interested to hear what he has to say and what's going to be on this podcast as you are. But at this point, I'm just going to say, John, take it away. And thank you to everyone who's listening. Thank you, Kate. And hello to the listeners of To Dine For, the podcast. My name is John Gallner. I've been lucky enough to be part of To Dine For since the very beginnings of the TV show. And I can't believe that we're already at three years of the podcast either. Before I get to some of my favorite moments from the show, I don't think an appearance on this podcast would be complete if I didn't talk about my favorite restaurant. Uh, It's a question that is asked of all of the guests that come on the show and has led to some really incredible answers, some of which that I have been lucky enough to be able to go to. I was really tempted to pick a place from my hometown of Sheboygan, Wisconsin. There's a lot of great restaurants there, especially if you want to get a bratwurst. But I think what I have to do is pick a place in Chicago that I really love called Sunwa Barbecue. It is a James Beard award-winning Hong Kong-style barbecue place on the north side of Chicago. Uh, It became a favorite of mine and my fiance Maddie's. And if you ever go, you have to get the off-menu Beijing duck dinner. It is a three-course meal that they make out of a roasted duck. They carve it for you tableside. It's really incredible. Bring a group. It is definitely a crowd pleaser. So with all of that being said, let's look at some of my favorite moments on the last three years of To Dine For The Podcast. When Kate asked me to come up with some of my favorite guests, so many came to mind. But the first episode I want to revisit is with M. Night Shyamalan. In addition to being a producer and editor for To Dine For and To Dine For The Podcast, I'm also a director, producer, and editor in the film and video world. So naturally, I was very interested in hearing from director M. Night Shyamalan about his films, finding your voice, and learning through successes and failures. Do you find yourself liking to go to fine dining restaurants? Or are you much more into, a, if you, you know, on a Friday night with your wife, would you prefer to go to something more casual? I'm very good with the, the extremes. Okay. So when it's done extremely well, yes. there's kind of curation. Right. Um, or, you know, a burger place. 
Right. You know, good uh, food. Yeah. Great. Whatever it looks yeah, like. Comfort. Yeah. yeah. Bar food. Like mm -hmm. done excellent. Mm -hmm. I'm down with that. Mm -hmm. So either way, but the middle ground where you're you're living in blurriness. Right. And, you haven't taken ownership of where your point of view is right. and you're kind of borrowing from other people's tropes and you're not doing something that's you. Mm. Mm. How does someone get to that place where they are uniquely themselves enough for it to like permeate everything that they do? God, it's so strange you said that because it's the exact opposite. I thought you were going to say, how do you get to that place where you're not expressing who you are? It's not that you're special and then you express yourself. The world has taught you to completely subjugate who you are and, and, and said, this is the system. And so just conform, conform, conform. For good reason, right? Mm -hmm. Evolutionarily, that's a good thing. Right. Right. So we're, our instinct is to conform and we feel good about tribalism and being, that's all was from a good place right. evolutionarily. But so that's what's funny. I, I thought you were going to say the exact opposite. When did we, how, when did we, give up ourselves mm. but you were like don't who, how do you find out to be so special we're all so special mm. so I, that's what that middle group is so sad for me you know whereas you know the bar food person that does it perfectly you know this is my perfect burger and it represents you know family and this mm -hmm. or camaraderie and, and that's who i am and you can feel it especially or this which is you know the celebration of a culture from italy or something you know in with, with the precision that he does. I, I wonder if that's what really sets you apart, Knight, is your sense of self mm. and your ability to be true to yourself in everything you do. I mean, as you just said, it's a rarity. It really is a rarity. Most people are still trying to figure out who they are. You know, what should I be? I mean, it's like a life is a yeah. huge journey of discovering mm. who you are, I think. Mm. But it sounds like you did it the opposite. You knew who you were and kind of went from there. Yeah, it, that's a really interesting thing you're saying about people are trying to figure out who they are. Mm -hmm. Are they or are they trying to get rid of all of the baggage of this is how you're supposed to talk and this is how you're supposed to think and that thing that makes you weird is the thing you're supposed to tamp, tamp down a bit and that aren't you inherently who you are? And if I say, you know, I, if I, you know, a, like a, like a therapist or something, you know, when I do this with actors, mm -hmm. you know, and they're, they're, they're defending their character, I say, wow, you just did a generality there when you made that choice when she said that to that. And if they tell, tell too many, like someone's auditioning for me, let's say, mm -hmm. and I will, I, I enjoy, if they get to the place where they're actually in the room with me, mm -hmm. that means they're close. Right. You're right. close. You're, you're in within a handful of people. And... And I'm like, hey, when you just did that, Kate, when you did, when you went to that line, I didn't understand why you went to, you know, comfort there or you were being kind. I didn't quite buy it because right before that there was anger and then you went to, to kindness. How did you justify that for her? And if they don't have an answer and they went, well, I just want, you know, the line is kind. So I did it kind. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's a bad sign for me. That's a bad sign. You're not. Because they don't know. Yeah, they're willing to not look and, and you know. So say the kind line with some anger, because, you know, I can say to you, I love you. You know, I love you, but I can say it with anger, right? I love you, but you're driving me crazy, right? Mm -hmm. I can say it with anger. So why do you give up? Don't betray yourself. Don't betray her if it's, if it's an actor, mm -hmm. right? And so you constantly say, hey, don't be scared of who you are. And don't, don't, all those colors that make you good and bad and arrogant and all, that's the beauty. That's what, that's part of the beauty. That's the salt and the pepper. You can't. Mm -hmm pretend it's not there, then you're, you're betraying yourself and you know you're betraying yourself and you start shutting them. 
then the only metric you have left is, am I accepted by the group? And then that's great. I mean, you can have that metric as your metric, but we all know that's not going to make you happy. At all. You might get rich famous. You might get, you know, you might get accepted, but it's not, you're not going to be happy. Yeah, that is, that's really fascinating. My dad had a Super 8 camera. I started making films there. And as all, we often do, we're just mimicking. So all the, the little films when I was a kid are mimicking something I saw, a, a scary movie, a Steven Spielberg movie, or whatever it is, a James Bond movie. You know, I'm just copying, copying, and then going, wow, that was terrible. That was horrible. Why was that horrible? And then not being discouraged by that, you know. I, I tell my kids now, you know, it's tenacity and iterations, and you can do anything, mm-hmm. you know. It's how you iterate. As the faster you iterate is that an energy and love gives you that motivation to iterate. That everyone's, everyone's changing. And so if you get discouraged after two iterations because you don't have the energy or the love, you're never going to get, you know, to be the version of yourself that you want. Persistence. Yeah. So what is that? What causes the persistence, mm-hmm. you know? And that can be how you were brought up or something you, you, you find that just I have to fix if you're humanitarian or right. whatever. Then you're moving a needle in a... In, an, in a world or an area that's impossible, a war-torn area. Well, you said that a lot of it at the beginning is just copying, right? Yeah. You're copying what you see. When do you shift from copying mm. what you see to having an original viewpoint? You have to be honest with yourself and go, wow, I'm either not successful because I'm copying you. Wow, that's not really me. Right. Or you're going, wow, I'm really successful copying you. Why do I feel so empty? You, because both are going to happen. So, you know, well, I've learned her craft. If you were a filmmaker, I learned right. your craft, but I'm still empty a bit. What's, what's happening? You know, and that's what... So, you're, so you're looking for creative satisfaction. Within and it's yourself. not going to come you, if, from copying no, somebody. Listen, and it'll start oh. to go, wow, I don't really like action sequences. Huh. Hmm. But I love the dinner table scene. Hmm. And you start, moving, you start moving towards your voice yeah. more and more. And so probably the worst thing that can happen to you is you become successful by copying, and then you're, that's it. See ya. Because then how do you Well, you, from it's that? hard to, that's a, that's a drug that's hard to let go of. Once you accept it into the group, that's a hard one, hmm. so. You're 25 years old, and you have really one of the most successful movies at the time. Thank you. What was that like? Again, you don't quite believe it, which is healthy. So you go, that's not real, that's not, you know, just write the next thing. Mm-hmm. Write, start writing the next movie, which is what I did. I just started writing Unbreakable. I was writing Unbreakable when, when Sixth Sense opened. Ah, you, know? you quickly moved on. Me- immediately, because you, you run the mentality that they won't let me direct another movie, so <laughs> just quickly, if I can direct one more movie, that would be great. Then you were a director. No, I just, just get one more movie. Right, okay. It felt from the two failures before Sixth Sense that that's it. Mm. And that's a great way to be, which is embracing the ephemeral nature of life so that you that it's not a bad thing that you you that change is not necessarily you know super threatening you know um and why do you why you know if you weren't getting paid to do it would you do it mm. yes i would right mm. don't tell the studios that but <laughs> and that, i would yes for <laughs> sure yeah yes, right so yeah. we would do this and right. so it's it's y- y- when you're coming from that right energy you tend to iterate without being threatened, so you know, so the two were a failure, and if it was just for and me, and you call them failures. Uh, well, empirical, mm-hmm. nothing's really a failure. Failure is fantastic. It's a form of iteration. Mm-hmm. So you get to start again, you know. And so by the metrics of what, say, money or for me, failure is I I didn't I I didn't express the characters 
in exactly the way I wanted to, mm. right? And so I wasn't capable of the do, uh, doing that yet. Mm. And, and so you couldn't hear who she was or he was Thank because I wasn't, I wasn't capable of doing it yet. So mm. um, if I express who, who they are properly and you still don't like, I'm good to go. Perfect, you know? So if you have a movie that mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, n not a failure, but a, not Thank a blockbuster you. hit. Yeah, yeah. That in many, in m empirical terms, is not a success. Yeah. Yes. In that scenario, if you're able to do express. what you set out to do yes. and express the characters the way you wanted to, yes. for you, that's a win. Definitely. That is definitely the, the, the de determining factor of success. So many people don't even make the attempt because they're afraid of failure. Mm. So many people don't even yeah. try yes. because they're afraid. What would you say to that? It's, it's, that's hell, taking that position. You, you can't, that's not a, a, a viable alternative, I'm, I'm afraid. You know? And I know it feels like if you don't hurt yourself, if you don't iterate, I'm, I'm using different terminology for the same thing. You right. know? It's all a, a version of finding that, that kind of hum of your turn. I guess my mom's super religious, you know, anything, so she would, you know, like the ohm, which is like the, you know, that kind of, that vibration where you match your vibration to the universe kind of thing, you're never going to get the literal version of that or the, or the modern version of that if you don't iterate and go, wow, I need to adjust that 1%, 2%, like that. It just hasn't happened unless you fail. You need to go out with the wrong guy. and right. that, don't, that doesn't work. Right. Right. But then you have to evaluate why, you know? And then you go out with another guy. Wow, that one was better because of this or that, or whatever it is, you know? Or you have this incredible gut feeling about the first guy and it's irrational in a, on a way that's like, wow, this is, and then you leap, you know? Mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's no wrong way to iterate, you know, um, except not iterating. The second interview I want to revisit is with the president of Virgin Unite, Jean Olwang. I hadn't heard of Jean before Kate spoke with her, but I learned a lot from her through editing this episode about partnerships of all kinds and the tools that some of the most successful partnerships of all time have used to make sure that their relationship lasts and thrives. One of the things that you talk about in the book is to not be afraid of conflict. And I feel like The Elders is a great illustration of that. But can you dive into that a little bit more? Because I think in business and in life, most people are afraid of conflict. Why do you find value in it? Yeah, and th this is a really important one. It's something that I think all of us have to learn. And in the book, we ended up calling it Celebrate Friction. And what was beautiful is I went through this process of interviewing 65 of some of the best partnerships and collaborations of our time. And I can remember, Kate, when I was first starting the interviews, I remember everyone saying to me, you have to find the fights, the arguments, the friction. Mm -hmm. So literally when I first started these interviews, I really tried to dig in and find that. And um, something beautiful happened when I did this because it wasn't that they were void of friction. It was that they had created these tools to lift above the drama so that they could focus on something bigger. Mm -hmm. And every one of the partnerships had different tools, but tools to do that. And some of them were things like positive amnesia. Like I knew that some of these folks, because I'd worked with some of them, had friction. And I, when I was digging in, you could see them protecting each other and not wanting to go backwards and talk about that negative. And it was so beautiful, Kate, because one of the things I noticed right away is that none of these partnerships undermined each other with a word or with their body language. Like Ben and Jerry, you could just feel the love they had for one another in the room. And they had created this beautiful tool called Veto Power, 
where if they saw they were getting in an argument uh, when they were starting Ben and Jerry's, they would each have a chance to have veto power where they could say, this is too important to me, we need to stop. And mm. then they, would, they agreed they would stop. And so they had this kind of almost mechanism to deflate any type of disagreement or argument that was going to potentially hurt their friendship. Mm, that is great. You know, as as sort of a woman in America today, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm in my mid 40s. And I feel like I was raised to avoid conflict. As I get older, one of the great gifts of getting older is I really realize the strength of anger as a superpower, because an anger often indicates what you care about. You know, instead of seeing anger as, oh, God, she's angry, you know, your blood pressure is going up, all of the negative things that go with being angry. It's not necessarily seeing it in myself, but seeing it in the world. When I see someone who's angry, you see opportunity for change and an opportunity to make something better. And I feel like that's at the heart of what you're saying with celebrate friction, right? Because that is a, a spark for something better. Absolutely. And I think I think we have to get angry right now. I think there's so many issues that demand our anger for mm-hmm. the next generation, the generations to come. And, you know, you're right. I think in these partnerships, what you saw is that because it always came from a place of good intention and they knew that they could hold that space and have those really difficult discussions and also create safe spaces for those disagreements. But they always knew that by coming together and almost starting that discussion with what if the other person is right? And why are they coming from that place? They always knew that they'd get to a third way that was even better. And I feel like in today's world, we're so divided right now. We don't hold that space of respect and trust. Mm -hmm. And I think you're spot on about women. You know, I grew up thinking that I had to have the right answer all the time. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't lose my temper or have a discussion about something difficult. I always had to come in positive and the right answer. And I think that starts with females from a young age, I remember my very first well-intentioned boss, you know, years ago, giving me two books. The, the first one was The Art of War, mm. How to Survive in Corporate America. And then the second one, just in case I didn't make it, was Joy of Cooking. <laughs> <laughs> two great books, but on completely different. That's hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, we start by putting women in these boxes. And, you know, that yeah. set me on a path that I was going to break every glass ceiling that I could to prove that I didn't need weapons of mass destruction <laughs> or learn to cook to be a success. And uh, so it's the wrong message, you know, and I think I think that is with women. We you know, we we need to create that space that it's okay to have difficult discussions, no matter what gender you matter or no matter who you are. When you are beginning a partnership or you're, you're looking to start a partnership, you talk about trust as numero uno, you know, when, when it comes to the beginning. How do you foster trust and what advice can you offer to people to foster trust in in business and in life? Yeah, I think trust came up in every single one of the 65 interviews as the first most important thing, but it was quickly twinned with respect Mm. was the other virtue. They were almost like sisters um, because it was hard to have trust without that respect. And this was something that I really struggled with, you know, something that I had to learn how to build in my relationships. And I think there's a few things. One is what I just mentioned of, you know, really always creating that space of realizing that someone's coming from a place of good intention and creating that safe space. Like Airbnb created something that I just loved, which they called elephants, dead fish and vomit. (laughs) 
which I never thought I would say those three words together. Um, <laughs> Elephants, dead fish, and vomit. Vomit. Okay, please explain. Okay, so this was a space that they created where once a week their teams got together and they were able to, in a really safe space, talk about the elephants in the room that no one was talking about, talk about the dead fish that everyone knew that were sitting there, but they were never resolving, and then talk about the, or just what they said, vomit, just get the vomit out of something that you needed to say in that minute, and you just needed to have an, a chance to vo vocalize it. And that said, so they talked a lot about how that build trust amongst them because they had these safe spaces. And I think the other thing we saw in companies that really was um, important was really being very transparent and clear and having very kind of clear guidelines of responsibilities of deliverables so that people weren't on top of each other trying to compete with one another. And making hard conversations the norm was, again, one of the reasons why I think Airbnb did that. But I think the other couple things is to really watch your body language. You know, again, like any movement or moment or like a kind of a rolling of the eye is something that <laughs> destroys trust right away. And you see people do that so many times. Mm -hmm. And then I think the last thing is just learning to trust yourself, because if you don't trust yourself, you're not going to be able to trust anyone else. And so really working on that to figure out how you can trust yourself and your own intuitions as well. You know, as you survey partnerships, because I'm sure you have worked with some partnerships that didn't work out or that were negative, right? We, you, we learn the most from, from the situations that don't work out. What would you say is the number one or two reasons why partnerships don't work and how can people ameliorate that situation? Yeah. I mean, I think we all have relationships that don't work. There's every <laughs> single one a person listening. Uh, there's no one that doesn't. And I think it's also figuring out that that spectrum of um, hard work that you want to put into relationships. Where do you put that on that spectrum? Because you'll have some acquaintances in life, but you'll have some people that you really want to be build deep connections. And sometimes it's you don't you shouldn't pursue a relationship because it doesn't it's not going to make you the best version of yourself. And we spent a lot of time talking to psychologists and um, talking to folks out there about what breaks partnerships. And the number one thing was lack of shared meaning. That was number one mm. at the top of the list. And quite quickly after that was lack of shared values mm. as well. Which is similar, which is very similar. similar. Lack of shared meaning and lack of shared values. But you know what? This is extremely helpful, Jean, because how many times I think of myself, I think of something's coming right to mind. Do we, at the very beginning of an interaction, we feel our, our gut tells us, you know what, we're not on quite on the same page, but maybe I can get them there. Right. And you can, and they're telling you that they don't care about what you care about. They're, they're very explicit. And yet somehow we're selective hearing that, right? That should be a number one red flag. If we're going to make a, a successful partnership, if we're not on the same page, we're in for some trouble. Yeah. And you, you know, what was beautiful is like, I never, you, I always thought of purpose as kind of a solo journey. You know, people talk about finding your purpose and, but going through this process for the last 15 years, what was really clear to me is that purpose and partnership are intertwined and it's the partners in your life who shape who you are in this world. And they're also the people that help you become the best version of yourself to make the most impact to others. So in the beginning of a partnership, if you don't have that shared meaning and sense of purpose, and it doesn't mean that you have to have the same purpose, right? It means that the other person has to have respect for your purpose and your dreams. And if you don't see that from the beginning, that's a massive red flag. I think the thing that surprised me the most was this 
idea of this intersection of purpose and partnering. And I hadn't, before I started, I knew I was gonna select folks who had made a difference in the world, but I never realized how core it was to, firstly, the success of their partnership, but then secondly, their ability to make great things happen in the world. And these larger collaborations that I interviewed, finding those friendships at the core was something that was a massive epiphany for me that I don't think I had expected. And as you said, as I was writing this and doing the research, we were also building things like the elders or a group of business leaders called the B team. And so I was seeing this live in action too of these friends coming together to do great things. The last episode I wanna go back to is Kate's discussion with Jason Pfeiffer of Entrepreneur Magazine. Jason is an incredible storyteller and has some really interesting insights into defining success, figuring out what you want to do with your life and what's the best way to go forward into doing that and allowing yourself to be bad at something on the way to becoming good at it, which I think is something that is very hard to do, but is really important on the way to creating something. Everyone that I have interviewed in some form or fashion through To Dine For, which are visionaries, creators, and dreamers, have either said it directly or said it subtly to lean into who you really are. Mm -hmm. And that has been an underlying theme of almost every single guest I've had. People always say, what is the commonality? I would say that's it. I've never actually spoken about this publicly. And, and, and people say, how do you become more yourself? Well, you walk towards what you're good at, what you like, what you have interest in, and do more of it. And that's basically, so when I asked you the question of all the professional things that you do, what is mostly you, you really distilled it down to, to a deep curiosity and allowing yourself to explore that. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I, you know, the advice of like, do the thing you're passionate about or whatever. It, it sounds very pat and cliche. Exactly. And and so maybe it doesn't all sound all that satisfying because you might be listening to this and you're like, well, okay, but what? And, you know, I guess the answer is push yourself to take something that you enjoy doing and then make it valuable for others. Mm. So, so like, w- what does that look like? For me, that project is a podcast, right? It, it, it's It's not the only thing I do, but it is one of the things that I do. And and I have pushed myself to like learn how to do it in that medium. Now, I, I enjoyed podcasts, but I didn't know how to make podcasts. So it turns out a good microphone costs like $60 and you can plug it into your computer. And if you have a Mac, then you have this free software called GarageBand. So now you you can record and edit. It's not that complicated. And then it's a matter of developing the skills. So when I when I listen back on those earlier episodes... I mean, I sounded terrible. Like I was just, I was awful. I was a terrible <laughs> host, right? And uh, and it took it took a long time for me to develop it. But right. but I I just I think on very long time horizons. I, I think that if I'm going to do something right now, it is not because there's going to be a payoff now. I'm going to figure out what the purpose of this is later. But I, first, I got to get good at it. I, you know, I, Ryan Reynolds told me, which I know sounds like a flex, but I was interviewing him for the magazine. Ryan Reynolds told me that to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. Because I was just going to say that clearly, you you were willing to to push through that discomfort, willing to be bad yeah. in order to get good. Yeah, that's right, and that's the se- that's the thing that separates people. Like being nobody's good at something at the very beginning, so exactly. that's not what separates people. What separates people is that is that some people are able to tolerate being bad long enough on their way yes. to being good. So it's like, yeah, okay, fine, be yourself, whatever. That's this sort of unsatisfying advice, but take it a step further. Figure out what of you 
could be valuable to others and then refine over time how you're delivering that value. That's when you have something. And look, you also could you you could enjoy bowling and you just go bowling every week. That's also totally fine. That's not valuable to others. But like, you know, if you want, if this is a thing that you're interested in is sort of creating something for yourself that that is going to drive value, maybe it's a thing that you make money off of, maybe it's a thing that introduces you to people and you make money another way, whatever it is, then you need to think about how do I take this thing that I'm passionate about and figure out how to turn it into some sort of product that others will care about but you're, it's gonna it's gonna be very bad at first and that's it's also gonna be bad fine. It's, it's gonna, gonna be, be bad. very bad oh you sh- my early days on television horrific <laughs> well it's interesting because you sit at a very unique position you have a bird's eye view yeah. of success across the board whether it's entertainment whether it's media whether it's entrepreneurship from the from the, the most successful entrepreneurs out there and mm-hmm. so I'm wondering how this journey as the editor-in-chief of, of Entrepreneur Magazine has changed your idea of success. Oh, I grapple with that a lot because I don't have like a specific goal. Like there's not a thing that I, there's not a bell to ring where I would ring it and it'd be like, aha, I'm done. Like I did it, you know? <laughs> Instead, what I found for myself is that I feel like Success to me looks like being able to continue to be better at the things that I'm doing and then figure out the opportunities that weren't obvious. Uh, Like Mm. growth is to me what success looks like. Here's the question people ask themselves too often and it's the wrong question. The question is, is this perfect? People will ask that of, some new thing that they're experiencing or some new situation that they've put themselves in. Is this perfect? And uh, the problem is that I, I, you know, I can tell you the answer right now. And the answer is no, it's not, it's not perfect. And so if the measure of success is, is this perfect, if is the filter of whether or not something is worth pursuing is, is this perfect? Well, then the answer is no, and you're not going to do it every Mm. single time. Mm. So instead ask this question, is my new problem better than my old problem? Mm. Because with that framing, we are leaving open the possibility of problems. Problems by themselves do not negate value. Instead, we can just start measuring progress by whether or not we have better problems. I mean, if I'm thinking about the things that I'm grappling with in my career right now, well, the problems that I have right now are much better than the problems that I have had five years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, right, and 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 in that I mean, you know, I just told you I'm grappling with this like, question of ownership or whatever. That that's fine. But you know, f- before entrepreneur, the problems that I would have had were how do I convince anybody that I have any value, uh, right? Or, you know, like or if I get laid off, how am I going to stay in this shaky industry? Those are worse <laughs> problems than I have now. And and so I, like that's what we need to be building towards is basically how do we create better problems for ourselves? We will always be trying to solve problems. That's fine. That's literally that's just what it is. That's what every everybody who I interview, you know, we were talking about all these famous people that I interview. Like they're all trying to solve problems for themselves. All it's you do not reach a level of success where then everything is fine, right? There, like right. There, it's just you don't. Nobody throws themselves a retirement party in the middle of the journey. So instead. The thing that you need to do is just recognize that progress is problems. They're just better problems. 
and and a better ability to solve them and and panic less. You know, hopefully yeah. you're you're evolving to the point where you're not at like DEFCON five panic level, but you're able to just grow, as you said, and you're able to evolve and handle things better in life. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So there you have it. Some of my favorite moments from three years of To Dine For the podcast. There are so many other episodes and interviews that came to mind when Kate asked me to pick three of my favorites. Ibram X. Kendi discussing anti-racism. Joan Melendez Meisner, who talked about her path to become a NASA engineer. Franklin Leonard, who created The Blacklist and talked about the role and worth of writers in Hollywood, which is especially relevant right now with the WGA on strike. So I suggest going back and listening to some of those if you haven't already. I hope you enjoyed revisiting some previous episodes with me. I want to say thank you again to Kate for giving me the opportunity to be a part of such a wonderful show full of thoughtful and inspiring stories. And thank you to all of the listeners who've helped us keep this going for three years. Here's to many more. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefortwithkatesullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lovatsa, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.